Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. And Adam would be standing outside the shop with a short sleeve t-shirt on in the dead of winter with his hands in his pockets bouncing. He didn't even have a key to his own race shop. I felt immortal sitting in that thing, so I mean, I, I was fine without all that stuff. He said, you can live here. You got your own private bathroom, your own bedroom. We got a quick handshake from him, got to see him smile one last time. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. And Steve, uh, this week is the culmination of everything that we have been working toward this offseason. We have been very, very hard at work on a project that 
has grown. <laughs> and it just yeah. about grew out of my control. I, I got to <laughs> tell you, there were a few sleepless nights. There were a few very early mornings where I just had it on my mind, on my heart, and wanted to go work on it a little bit. But the project that we have worked on during the off season, it's called Firestorm 2000 and 2001, the years that forever changed NASCAR. And it is a 10 episode documentary podcast series that is dropping this week for better or worse. It is coming out this week and it is going to drop on February the 18th. And Steve, that is the 20th anniversary of the 2001 Daytona 500. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely cannot believe, first of all, that it's been 20 years. I agree with you, Rick. Time flies. It really does. It's very hard to believe it was 20 years ago. I, I Sometimes, though, Rick, I'll be honest with you, what we're talking about in this podcast, sometimes I think it happened just yesterday. Yeah. Because I read something about it, and I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. But then again, it, I, there are times when it seems so long ago, but yet, the years 2000 and 2001 and what they meant to NASCAR and how they changed NASCAR are really unforgettable. Here's a way to put it into perspective. The night before the 2001 Daytona 500, I was in the press box. Of course, I had covered the Bush Series race that day. And my wife emailed me a studio photo of the boys, their very first studio photo, their newborn photos. And that is the very first one that we ever got of them. And literally, I was downloading that photo as I was looking down on the track and watching Dell Earnhardt drive Terry Bradshaw around the racetrack in the pace car. Mm -hmm. And they came to a stop right there at the trial, right there at the start finish line, got out of the car, and they acted like they were in victory lane and all that. But to put that into perspective, this past weekend, we took Adam and signed his lease for his very first apartment for when he uh, goes to uh, App State. In the uh oh, <laughs> so <laughs> that just put it into place for me. That, sure, that's how long that has been. And of course, I've mentioned it before on the podcast. My Adam is named after Adam Petty because that was something that just really impacted me. Mm, a lot. Yeah. Well, I in two thousand one, Rick, I was on the couch in my study watching the Daytona 500. I'd been down to Daytona, but I couldn't stay for the 500 because we're doing television on a Sunday morning. And I sort of settled in and thought to myself, well, this is highly unusual. I'm usually in the press box getting ready to work about this time. Now I'm home sitting on the couch looking forward to watching this race. Uh, I can't tell you what an empty feeling it was when that race was over. Mm. Something that I thought was very, very important to me. Of course, Dale Earnhardt was by far the most well-known person that we lost in the years 2000 and 2001, but he was not the only person that we lost in That's those right. two years. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this documentary was to honor the memories of those other people that we lost. And Steve, the years 2000 and 2001 in NASCAR were two of the toughest this sport has ever faced. I mean, we lost Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin and Tony Roper in the year 2000. And there was this constant sense of pressure in trying to figure out what was going on and then what to do about it. 
You're exactly right. I remember that time with all the talk about what is NASCAR going to do about this? What is NASCAR going to do about that? And people had all kinds of suggestions and proposed solutions. One thing that I remember very clearly, it was at New Hampshire. Both uh, Kenny Irwin and Adam Petty lost their lives. And there was a lot of pressure on Bob Bear, who was the founder and builder of the New Hampshire track, to change the configuration of his track. Somehow or other, that came into play. And Bob, bless his soul, he was adamant that he would do anything it took to make the track safer if the track was at fault. He had no problem with that. That's how badly he felt about what could happen again. But of course, it never did, thankfully for Bob, but it did keep sparking the need to improve safety in NASCAR, whether it be equipment or whether it be the tracks. Back then, you had old school guys like Dell Earnhardt and Warburton and Ken Schrader and Jimmy Spencer and just any number of guys, and they were adamantly, adamantly opposed to full-face helmets and head and neck restraint devices like the Hans. And so there was one side, but on the other hand, you had new school guys like Jeff Burton and Brett Bodine who were talking about safety. And Steve, at times they were getting criticized for it and they were getting criticized for it pretty heavily. Well, that, that, that's true. And the, that is true. And the thing that the drivers who did not like the Hans device complained about was it was bulky. It didn't feel right. They couldn't turn their heads the way they wanted to, not realizing that the Hans device was meant to keep your head stable. But having raced so long in the old way, it was tough for those guys to give way to anything new. Hand it to Brett and hand it to Jeff and guys like them. They were not afraid to experiment with the devices. And it turned out to be they were right. In the 20 years since all that went down, people have talked about how NASCAR didn't do anything about safety until after we lost Dale Earnhardt. And Steve, that just isn't the case. I mean, when you had new school guys like Jeff Burton and Brett Bodine and, and who all ever else up against old school guys like Dale Earnhardt and Ken Schrader and who all ever else, NASCAR was literally between a rock and a hard place. The rock being the need to improve safety but the hard place being the old school guys who were not going to change. Absolutely, right. positively, we're not going to change. So what was NASCAR to do? When it comes to things like the Hans devices and some other safety things, I think NASCAR realized that was something that could improve safety, but it just could not go out and mandate it unless it was fully tested and fully explored on the track. I mean, you can't just have two drivers using it and then tell the others, hey, you got to use it too. It doesn't work that way. There has to be a, a blanket approval for NASCAR to mandate. Notice the word I'm saying is mandate the use of any device. They can suggest it, but they couldn't mandate it at that point. Then, of course, came the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. That created the most seismic change this sport has ever known that year was just terrible. And Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. The year 2001, other than my boys being born, I can't remember a single positive thing, a single fun thing 
that took place in 2001. That was just an absolutely crazy year. Well, Dale Earnhardt's death overshadowed everything. The attention shifted to a controversy over safety and what to be done. And it also was full of conspiracy theorists about how Dale passed away. Everything from uh, he had, his seatbelts were wrong or they were old or they had been broken, which I think they had been, but that was only part of what happened at Daytona. So you heard all this week after week after week. Uh, and finally, it just seemed like to me, except for a couple of moments in 2001, we were lost in the fact that we weren't talking about racing and races and drivers. We were talking about safety, this type of equipment. No, you need that type of equipment. NASCAR needs to do this. No, NASCAR needs to do that. It just permeated the whole season. And then finally, Blaze Alexander died during an ARCA race at Charlotte. And Steve, that was... Well, I know that, it was yeah. very hard on you. We'll talk more about what happened the day after later on the podcast. But, Steve, this whole documentary project grew out of a book that I have written that I haven't been able to quite find a publisher for yet. But because of how strongly I felt the material was, and because, again, I truly did want to honor the five people that we lost during those two years, you and I talked about it. I talked about it with Peter Salino, who is at Centire Media, and he really encouraged me, you really encouraged me to turn this into a documentary podcast. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you, the documentary that people are going to be able to hear this year, it's kind of grown. And it just about grew unmanageable. <laughs> you know, in the back of my mind, I figured at first that it would just be three episodes. One looking at the 2000 season, then one looking at the 2001 Daytona 500, and then one on the year that came afterward. Well, then it became six episodes. <laughs> and then it became 10 episodes. So this is how it's all going to break down. Five episodes will be devoted exclusively to the five drivers that we lost during those two years. And we talked to people who really knew them. And one of the things that I really wanted to do that I'm very, very proud of is I wanted to include clips from the drivers themselves so people could hear who they were and hear their voices. And in most of these cases, if not all the cases, they were either in victory lane or after a very, very good finish. Most of the cases, it was after their best career finish. Of course, it wasn't hard to find audio from Dale Earnhardt. But we also have audio from Adam and Kenny and Tony and Blaze. So people are going to be able to hear them as they were in life. And that is going to be a tremendous addition to this documentary. No doubt about it. And Steve, one of the craziest things that I realized in putting this project together was just how interconnected all these people and tragedies were. When Kenny Irwin had his accident, he was in the number 42 Sadco racing car that Kyle Petty had driven for years. Yeah. He had made mm -hmm. that number in car famous. So there's one connection. Then when Tony Roper had his accident, he got together with the Petty Enterprises truck that was driven by Steve Grissom. 
and that triggered his accident. So there's another connection. Right. Then, of course, Dale Earnhardt hugged Kyle Petty on pit road just before the start of the 2001 Daytona 500, and he was a seven-time champion, just like Richard. Then, finally, Kerry Earnhardt, Dale's oldest son, was involved in Blaze Alexander's mishap. Well, you can see how the Petties and uh, Earnhardt, to a point, are all intertwined through everything that happened that year and in 2001. One episode will focus on the safety debate in the year 2000. Another will focus on the 2001 Daytona 500 itself. And another on the immediate aftermath up to and including Mike Helton's just incredible announcement that night that we had lost Dale. One other episode will center on the absolute firestorm of controversy and conspiracy that took place in the wake of the 2001 Daytona 500. And then finally, the series concludes with a short episode that talks about the legacy of those two years and the absolutely incredible advancements in safety that have been made. What you mentioned right there is what I was alluding to a bit earlier. 2001 was full of talk about everything but actual racing. At least it was to me because there was so much controversy going on and so much conspiracy theorists that you really could not concentrate on what was actually happening racing. Our guys had seen, they reported everything, but man, oh man, it was just, it was just one thing after another based upon safety. I think we can't forget either that 2001, of course, was the year of 9-11. That's true. So, uh, that, what a yeah. year. What a year. Uh. Yeah. And Steve, there are some people that I do want to thank for their involvement in this whole project. You, for your guidance and encouragement and your mentorship. Steve Richards from PRN, who provided some awesome sound clips from that time frame that added so much detail to the project. My best friend, Joe Estep, for the musical score. Peter Salino, who is always been an encourager and counselor on everything having to do with the technical side of producing and uploading a podcast. And finally, my buddy, Todd Phillips, who helped smooth out the sound a little bit. So Steve, with that said, the very first episode deals with Adam Petty. I know that you were around Adam literally from the very beginning. What is your earliest memory of that young man? Well, I, I remember him as a kid, uh, I went to the Petty home and uh, Kyle's home, and I was there visiting with them. Uh, Kyle and I were doing some kind of piece. I can't remember what it was, but I got to meet his three kids, okay? And it was funny to talk around with them. And Adam was just full of himself. He was a wide-open kid, no doubt about it. Uh, but one thing, he evolved into a very, very nice young man. He had the petty smile, but he had the petty manners as well. I mean, Kyle and his wife, Patty, had raised him right. The reason I can tell you this is because he's been watching me on television and reading my stuff, and he came up to me again at the petty house. He came up to me and he said, Mr. Wade, sir, how did you get away with all you say on TV like that? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, first of all, I'm Steve. Mr. Wade is my father, and he <laughs> laughed about that. But that's how we first started our conversation 
as he, after he grew up. And I was most impressed. Well, it was funny. You mentioned him being a well-mannered young man. Evidently in his younger years, he was a little bit of a handful. Chris Hussey said, I think somebody should have beat him. <laughs> but he, was Chris, he was. But Chris was Adam's crew chief, and Adam had matured to the point where this is the young man that Chris knew. Here's one of my favorite stories is I'd pull into the shop at about seven o'clock in the morning, and Adam would be standing outside the shop with a short sleeve t shirt on in the dead of winter with his hands in his pockets bouncing. Uh, you know, he didn't even have a key to his own race shop but he was there before we were waiting for us to open the door. And then he would just sweep the floors, chew bubble gum and sweep the floors. And it's just whatever we would, could find him to do, but he would hang out with us all day. Steve, what do you remember about Kenny Irwin? Well, I didn't get to talk to Kenny very much, but I do remember one thing that happened. And I believe this was that day time. Something was going on with Kenny on the Robert Yates team. I don't remember exactly what it was, it has something to do with the fact that Kenny needed to do better as a driver, as I remember correctly. And they did tell the press that in the infield, in the motorhome, Kenny was going to have a press conference, and you guys are all welcome to come and listen to him. Well, I said, okay. I went, and I was the first one there. And Kenny was sitting at a table all by himself. So I went up to him, sat down beside him. Before I could say a word, he said, I'll do whatever it takes to keep this ride. I don't want to lose this ride, and I don't want anything to happen to the team because it was my fault. Right out, that's the first thing he said to me. So I was impressed with that, that he would come out and say that he's going to try to correct himself, remove the errors, whatever they were that he was making, that made the team look bad or made him look bad. That was standing up and telling the truth. For the Kenny Irwin episode, I talked to Bob East, who fielded a car for Kenny in USAC National Midget Competition. I also talked to his good friend, Johnny Vance the third, and Tony Glover, who was his crew chief that day in New Hampshire. And here is Bob East on a run-in that Kenny had with Tony Stewart during a midget race in Terre Haute, Indiana. We have a hot 100 race, they call it. It's a 100-lap race in Terre Haute. It was a big event. and um, we had two cars. Tony Stewart was driving one and Kenny was driving the other one. And Tony was leading and had a pretty good lead. Kenny got the second and ran him down right away. And he gave him a slide job and missed. And they <laughs> hit. So they took both cars out. It was on ESPN Thursday Night Thunder. And, you know, and Kenny said he 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 could have lifted. I was clear, you know, and then Tony said, hey, he just ran into me. You know, so it was a big deal. And after that, Bob sat Kenny down in his office for a little bit of racing advice. But I took Kenny in my office and I told him, I go, Kenny, you've got to understand that when you have a car that that much faster than another guy, whether it's Tony or anyone else, you need to pick your spot to go by because you were definitely quicker. And he, and I said, so basically it was your fault. And he goes, well, I don't see it that I go, I'm trying to teach you how to race. And when you have a car that's that much faster, you don't take those kind of chances. If that was the final lap, we would have said, hey, both of you are racing for it. But we weren't even halfway. So, and I think he learned a lot from that, and he carried that on a little bit. After we lost Adam and Kenny, that really created this huge debate about safety and what could be done about it. And we talked a little bit about it before, but everybody had ideas. 
everybody was wanting NASCAR to just magically create this perfect world where nobody ever got hurt. But the thing was, that wasn't possible at that time because if you try something and it doesn't work, there was the possibility that it could create an even bigger problem. And that's one of the things that we talk about in the podcast. Steve, here is Ward Burton talking about how he was not a fan of the Hans device. I felt very comfortable in my little cockpit. I'm a small guy. I was senile. You can ask my crew. I, I wanted my seat exactly where I wanted, where my steering wheel, the pedals. I mean, I had, I had everything right there, and I felt like I was in my little cocoon, and I felt, I felt immortal sitting in that thing. So, I mean, I, I was fine without all that stuff. And then there was Tony Roper, who was basically just hanging on for dear life to maintain a spot in the sport. Here is Tony's widow, who is now remarried. Her name is now Michelle Roper Shue. And in this clip, she talks about plans that they had discussed for a post-driving career. He knew after not making several races with the Dr. Pepper car that, you know, things were probably going to be coming to an end with them. And again, that's when we, you know, started talking about him potentially looking another avenue of staying in NASCAR because that was what he wanted to do. That was his life, you know, and he didn't feel that if he was going to be able to make it driving, that he wanted to still be a part of that. And the next specs thing was going to be a crew chief. And he really understood the cars, the trucks, and, you know, he could make things different. I know Carl Edwards sought him out whenever he was getting into Mike Mettler's truck and, you know, he went and tested with him and uh, he just really knew a lot of it because that's what he worked on and that's what he did. And so I think that he would have, that would have been his next move when he was realizing that, you know, this was the driving aspect was not panning out to what he had hoped for. Steve, there was so much that could have been said about Dell Earnhardt but here is your Dale Earnhardt story from the very first episode of the Scene Vault podcast. If he liked you, he was a true friend. In other words, he was not just an associate. And the, the proof of that to me came when I moved to Concord uh, in 1981. I had covered Dale all, since his start, you know, three or four years ago. And at the time, his Rod Oshlin days and all that sort of thing. So I was moving to Concord, and I was staying with a friend of mine for three months until school was over and my family could come down. Earnhardt found out about that. And he said, wait a minute. He said, come to my house right now. So I drove to his house, and I walked in, and he showed me the entire lower level of the house. He said, you can live here. you got your own private bathroom, your own bedroom, you know, Things of that nature, and your own private entrance. Now, imagine, imagine a champion of this sport asking a, a rider to do the same today. I'll never forget that, of course, Rick. I mean, just imagine having a Winston Cup champion offer you a place to live because he knew that you needed it. At that time, I was closer to Dale than I had been any other driver. But, of course, the fate worked out that... Uh, you know, I didn't live with him, and that was probably a good thing, <laughs> to, to be honest with you. But uh, we did become very close at that time. And then, of course, came the 2001 Daytona 500, and that is an event that has been debated and dissected more than anything else. 
that has ever happened in NASCAR. And we do delve into that, but I also really thought that it was important to remember Dale Earnhardt as he was in life, the way that his friends saw him. And here's an incredible story from Kyle Petty. He saw me and he come over and, you know, he put his arm around me and he said, it's going to be all right, man. He said, things happen and it's going to be all right. He said, you'll be good. You'll be okay today. He said, just stay, stay out of trouble. Everything will work out. And we just hugged each other. And, you know, he put his arm around me and hugged me and I hugged him and we went our separate ways. And that was the last thing that we said to each other. After Dale died, the next several months were a nightmare for a lot of people. And as we discussed earlier, there were so many rumors and conspiracy theories. It was basically like the JFK assassination with the Russians and the Cubans and the mob and LBJ and the grassy knoll and everything. And you had NASCAR and Bill Simpson going up against each other. Steve, it just got ugly. And here is Bill talking about the incredible blame that he was facing. I had a son of a bitch come by my house on Lake Norman and shot my house up with about 16 bullets. I met Mickey and Mooch as they tried to burn my fucking truck down. You know, it created a, a real lot of issues. And it wasn't necessary. It was a racing accident, period. Now, that's amazing. All the things that happened to Bill by people who thought he was at fault for Dale's death. It was more than Bill taking that kind of stuff. You remember that at the end of that race, it was Sterling Marlin who was behind Dale Earnhardt when the car, Dale's car, was turned. He took one heck of a lot of heat for that, although he did nothing wrong. He took a lot of heat for that. He got the phone calls at the shop threatening him and things of that nature. And he said to me, you know, it's pretty scary there for quite a while. And when you think back on it, it, it was somewhat ridiculous. But that is the influence Dale had over racing's people and his fans. They were agitated and frustrated and angry that he had died. And they looked for the blame anywhere and everywhere, sometimes very unfairly. To Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s credit, he spoke to that during the press conference that he had at Rockingham. All I know is that so many people have said that NASCAR didn't try to start improving safety until after Dell Earnhardt died. And uh, that's just not the case. That is absolutely not the case. I think that what did come about after that day was that Dell Earnhardt losing his life on the racetrack made it okay to talk about safety in the sport because if it could happen to an indestructible guy like Dell Earnhardt, it could happen to anybody. And that was the catalyst that led NASCAR to quickly explore and test new safety devices. Finally, in October came Blaze Alexander's accident. And Steve, you kind of mentioned it in the intro, but the day after that happened, the morning after that happened, I walked back into the media center. I was, I mean, I was just in a daze. I I was in a daze for basically two years over everything that had happened. And one of the old-time, long-time NASCAR media members, he came into the media center, Steve, and I know that you weren't there, but he came into the media center, and he was all but laughing about what had happened. And he was saying crap like, well, old Billy France has killed another one. I was sitting at my desk 
across the media center from him, Bambi Mattia, who was one of our photographers, was standing there talking to me. And when this guy started talking and being real loud and boisterous and saying what he was saying, Steve, I had something come over me. And before I knew what was happening, I was screaming at him from across the room to shut his blankety blank mouth. Mm-hmm. And and I think that people know me well enough from this podcast. And certainly I think that you know me well enough. That's not part of my DNA. That's not something that I do. I'm as laid back as they come, but all of a sudden I was cussing this guy like there was no tomorrow. And that I'll never forget. Number one, Bambi, I'll never forget her eyes and the look on her face. She kind of took two or three steps back and the media center just got real quiet. And Steve, I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed because I tried to be a better example of my faith always. But that day I I completely failed because I was saying, I was saying words I didn't know I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Every man has his limit, Rick. Every man has his limit. And on that day in the media center, that veteran motorsports writer, whom I know, by the way, (laughs) just pushed you to your limit. And I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I was hurting. I didn't know Blaze. Of course, I'd interviewed him and everything, but I can't say that I knew him well. But Jimmy Johnson, here's the crazy story about Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy had just qualified for the very first race of his Winston Cup career. Think about that. The very first race of his Winston Cup career. And he just felt this need to go over to Blaze's car to say hello and shake his hand and, you know, wish him well and kind of joke with him and all that. And from that point, we know what happened with Jimmy's career, and we also know what happened with Blaze. Yeah, I was so happy, you know, to qualify how we did in our cups, you know, cup effort, and um, you know, standing around, you know, hanging out with loads of people, talking about how great we did, and I just felt this sense of urgency to run, run out and wish them luck, and just real happy that I was able to run out and engines were running. We got a quick handshake from him, got to see him smile one last time, and just amazing. In a blink of an eye, someone can be gone, and. Uh, you know, it's hard to realize that stuff until someone close to you is gone. And with all the tragedy this whole country's seen, you know, including the, the death, the deaths in motorsports, um, and you got to live every day to the fullest and, uh, you know, appreciate everyone around you. You know, just went out to wish him luck, just like you do, you know, any, any other time and didn't know he wouldn't come back. You know, it had to be very, very awkward and hard for Jimmy to get out there and race again after losing a friend like Blaze. Uh, you know, there is enough pressure on a young man who's trying to make a career in Winston Cup racing. There's enough pressure there. See, he doesn't have to be burdened with the loss of a friend. I don't care who that driver is or who his friend is. It just can't be easy. Most of the drivers in the field were already using either the Hans device or the Hutchins device, but less than two weeks after Blaze died, NASCAR mandated either the Hans or the Hutchins device and the Hutchins device eventually went away. But now every driver on the track uses a Hans. There are safer barriers lining basically every square inch of a racetrack. NASCAR went through the cars with a fine tooth comb to improve safety. Now, one of the results of that was the car tomorrow. And if that opens up a whole nother can of worms, (laughs) with the reception that it got and for most corners 
especially when it came to aesthetics and how it looked, it wasn't very well received, but it was a safer race car. And since we lost Blaze, not one single driver has died in any of NASCAR's top three national divisions. That's 20 years without a death. And Steve, to me, that is the legacy of the 2000 and 2001 seasons. I agree. Absolutely. I think that's a big part of the legacy of Dale Earnhardt as well. So, Steve, this all drops on Thursday, February 18th, 2021, 20 years to the day after we lost Dale Earnhardt. Listeners, if you're out there, give it a shot. Give it a shot. I know I'm not the greatest narrator that there has ever been, but I think that we did a pretty good job on the content. Regardless, Rick, you've done a tremendous amount of work. You are doing great praise for that. And I encourage the listeners to take in what you've done. I think they will be most impressed. Is that all the way now? Okay. All right. Can you hear me? Got it. Got it. That was it. (laughs) How in the heck did that volume ever (laughs) turn you? Never touch it. Well, I knew I knew it had to be something simple because I can I can hear you perfectly. <laughs>